That's such a cool way to start. I've always wanted one. Um, good morning, everybody. How are you? Good. Uh, um, couple of things. First of all, Roly, got to get you a pink shirt or something, dude. We got we to gotta stop matching every week. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to say, just in, in following up to uh, the moment we just had there, um, I, I've been an elder for like four years of my life. My dad was an elder for 40 years. Um, and uh, it, it is a special thing to be an elder for a, a, a church community, a local church body like this, and to serve uh, above and beyond uh, for extra time the way that Jorge has is a, a pretty special thing and a really good gift to Discovery. So uh, I know we just prayed for them and, and gave them uh, a thank you, but if you have an opportunity to personally thank both of them this morning, I would just encourage you to do that as a way to uh, reinforce our gratefulness for uh, his service and the sacrifice of their family uh, to allow him to serve as an elder in that capacity for that amount of time. Um, one other thing before we get started, I woke up this morning with some gravel in my chest, so just bear with my voice, um, hopefully be able to make it through this, but uh, not feeling super great this morning. Probably the result of moving and all the stuff that we've been through. Uh, in the last week. But things are going well, we're getting settled, and we're super glad to be here. And I am very excited about our conversation this morning. This passage that we're going to be looking at today from First John as we continue this series is just loaded with stuff to chew on. So before we get into that, I want to pray, and then we'll go ahead and get started. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of today. Thank you for the gift of community and being together, this time that we get to share where, where we worship together and take communion together and listen to your word, your voice together. God, there is a lot in this text for us to wrestle with, and um, I know I've, I've spent a lot of time this week trying to figure out what exactly it is that we need uh, to focus on, but I, I ask God that... Uh, everyone in here today would uh, hear you, that whatever we bring into this space this morning, we would be able to uh, give that to you to hold during this time that we, we may hear from you and respond in the way that we need to respond to the truth that we encounter. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm a, I'm a child of the 90s. I grew up in the 90s, um, formative years then. And uh, as many people in my generation, uh, I have these bouts of nostalgia for the 90s, mostly for me, that manifests itself through music and going back and listening to all of the 90s songs that I love. But there's also been, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's been this resurgence of 90s fashion, that's been, that's been happening. And I, I'm not really like a fashion person. I don't really notice a lot of this, except when Rolly and I wear the same exact thing. That, then I notice that. But my wife will point this stuff out to me. We'll be out somewhere or whatever, and she'll kind of subtly say, oh my goodness, I had that outfit when I was in middle school. And, and it's this like comeback of like flower prints and overalls and choker necklaces and all these kinds of things that were popular in the 90s are making a comeback. However, there's one thing that, at least to this point, 
has not made a comeback yet, okay? So does anybody remember, do you guys remember, those of you who are old enough to remember this, anybody remember No Fear shirts? Okay, a few of you remember these? All right, if you don't know about No Fear shirts, let me just give you a couple of examples so that you can enjoy the awesomeness of, of No Fear shirts. So here's one. Limits were made to be broken. No fear. Okay, they, they, had a, they had a tood to them, as my mom would say, these No Fear shirts. Here's, here's another one. This one's more specific. Bottom of the ninth, down by three, bases loaded, full count, two outs, no fear. <laughs> I actually think I had that one because I, I played baseball a lot as a kid and, and loved baseball. I think, I know I had some of these. I think that was one of the ones that I had. All right, here's my favorite one, okay? Absolutely, positively, most definitely, without a doubt, no fear. And then just in case that wasn't enough, parentheses, not even a little bit. <laughs> All right, no fear shirts. Okay, now you know about them if you did not know about them before. Now, fashion statement aside, what is interesting to me about these shirts and what these shirts represent is, is this idea that I think is still very prevalent, not just a 90s thing, still very prevalent in our culture, that fear is this thing that is holding us back from whatever, uh, whatever we think our best life might be. Holding us back from our best, from performing at our highest level. The message of these shirts, again, a message that I think is still very prevalent in our culture is that fear can be overcome, can be vanquished through an attitude shift. That if we work up enough courage, if we get psyched, if we think enough positive thoughts, then fear will no longer have the same control over us. We'll be free to overcome our limits, free to face difficult situations, free to be more awesome with not even a little bit of fear. And what's interesting is that no matter how hard we try to work ourselves up into this place of no fear, we're still scared of a lot of things. We fear big things, catastrophic events, things that might happen to us or to our family, to our loved ones. We fear somewhat silly things like spiders. For me, it's crabs. I don't know what it is about crabs, but they, they move weird, and it scares me. <laughs> yeah, we fear silly things. We fear relational things, things like telling the truth, confronting someone, having a difficult conversation, opening up about what's really happening in our lives, and we have fears about where we're going, where everything is headed. Fears about what the future holds. Will we be okay? Now, the number one command in Scripture is not avoid doing bad things, avoid sin, or do more good things for people, be a nicer person. The number one command in Scripture is fear not. Don't be afraid. The abundant life that Jesus offers and that John is writing in this letter is a life free from fear, but for a lot of us, a life free from fear sounds like a fantasy. Like, how do you do that? How do you live without fear? And so that's the heart of what we're looking at this morning. So if you have a Bible, open to 1 John. And we're in 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at, at verses 7 through 21. And again, there's just a ton in this. So I'm going to read a couple verses here. Verses 7 and 8 serve as an introduction. 
and then we'll break down the rest of it here. So 1 John 4, 7, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. <clears throat> Once again, John starts this section on this note of intimacy. Dear children, dear friends. He repeats this all throughout his letter. And then what he does in these first two verses is give us a, a flavor of the, what the rest of the text is going to be about. These big themes of love, the source of love, knowing. And then he drops in this massive statement at the end of all of that. God is love. We'll get to that here in just a second. But what I want to do uh, first is highlight there, there, there's an interesting internal structure to the text that comes after this introduction. And so what John does is he, he divides us into four parts. Each part is signaled by the words, this is. And I'm working again this week from the NIV. If you have a different translation, it might say something like in this or by this. But four times he says, this is, and then he makes a big statement. And so what I want to do here is just walk through those four statements, and then I want to unpack some of the big ideas in the text that come in between all of that. So the first this is comes in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. The second this is comes right away uh, in verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Third one comes a little bit farther down, verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And then the last one is verse 17. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Now, again, some of the big ideas within, this, uh, within these four this is statements. The first one comes back to the introduction, right? This phrase, this statement, John says it twice, verse 8 and verse 16, God is love. This is one of the most consequential statements in, in all of Scripture. And it requires us to say something both about God and about love because I think that this is also one of the most misunderstood statements in all of Scripture. So let's start with, what does this say about God? This is the first time that John has clearly stated that God is the source of love. He's talked about love several times already in the letter, urged his audience, urged us to love one another. But here he takes this conversation to a whole other level by saying that the source of love is God because God in his very nature is love. This is significant because it, it, it goes beyond treating love as one of God's attributes. As you make your way through Scripture, as you study Scripture, there's many attributes of God that we encounter. For example, Scripture tells us that God is compassionate and gracious. But Scripture does not say God is compassion. God is grace. So what is the difference then between saying God is love and God loves? C.H. Dodd writes, the latter statement, God loves, 
might stand alongside other statements such as God creates, God rules, God judges. That is to say, it means that love is one of his activities. But to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. Do you see how that's a little bit different? How this takes it to a different level? Now, let's take this a step further. Let's keep unpacking this a little bit. Let's do a deep dive into some theology for a second. For a couple thousand years now, theologians, as they reflect on how God is revealed to us in Scripture, have come to the conclusion that God exists as the Trinity, this mysterious uh, three persons in one being. And we actually see this in, in 1 John 4. John refers to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one being, God in his very essence, his very Nature is communal. God is a community. Now here's why this statement, God is love, is so important. Since God's whole existence is one of self-giving, self-sacrificing love for the betterment of the other, and since he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, this means that the most foundational truth about our universe is that it is loving. Now, our experience of reality may not line up with this, right? We may not feel that on a regular basis, but what John wants us to know is that underneath all of it, underneath everything, the foundation of our universe is love. Now, let's say something about love, because again, I think one of the reasons this is one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture is because we have a deep misunderstanding about what love is, and we could spend a whole lot of time on this. I just want to highlight two things. One of those misunderstandings has to do with the idea of love as permissiveness. If I love you, then I will sort of give you the space to do whatever you want to do, and then I will approve of whatever you choose to do. Nothing has helped me understand the foolishness, though, of that line of thinking quite like parenting. We have two kids, three and a half and five and a half, and so at their stage of life and development and maturity, there are just certain things that would be very unloving if I gave them permission to do. So they don't get to drive the car, right? <laughs> or play with fire or eat whatever they want to eat whenever they want to eat it. We have these, these things in place, right, so that they are safe. Now, to love my kids is absolutely to give them space to learn and grow and explore, and we don't want to control them. Maybe sometimes we want to control them, but we don't want to control them. But they do need leadership and structure and correction. It would actually be unloving to let certain behaviors, certain choices, actions go uncorrected. So when John says, God is love, he doesn't mean that God has this attitude toward, towards us of, like, do whatever you want to do. It's cool. God does give us a surprising amount of freedom, but love is not permissiveness. Are you with me? 
Love is also not feelings of warmth, affection, and passion. Now, those are great things. Certainly, I hope you experience those things in your significant relationships. And I'm certain that there are strong feelings of affection within the Trinity, but that's not love. It's a byproduct of love. This leads us to the the second big idea that John is, is, is presenting in this text, this idea that love is action. Love is activity. Love is demonstrated in tangible ways. These this-is statements are all about showing us God's love in action. Verse 9, he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He has given us of his spirit, sending, giving, atoning, sacrificing, risking, initiating. When we hear the word love, When we hear God is love, these are the kinds of words. These are the ideas that need to pop up in our minds. Sending, giving, atoning, sacrificing, risking, initiating. Love is action. It is demonstrated. It's risky. It's costly. C.S. Lewis says it this way. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. That's a crazy thing to think about. If God is love, as John says he is, then God is vulnerable. God's heart can be broken. Which means that our universe is also built on risk. This is the great paradox of our world, this foundation of love and freedom, love and risk. Which can, I think in a way, sound kind of scary, but know this, I think there's, at least for me, there's comfort in this. If you are risking, if you are trying to love in sacrificial ways, you are participating in one of the deepest, the deepest truth of the universe. I apologize for all the parenting analogies this morning, but this is just my life right now, so I have a lot of them. Parenting, especially when you're parenting young children, is not very rewarding in the moment, right? There's no one, uh, we had to get up a couple times with our kids last night for various reasons. There's no one standing there applauding you when you get up in the middle of the night to find a stuffed animal or help someone go to the bathroom or comfort someone who's having a bad dream. And then the kids themselves, they don't realize all the things that you're doing for them. They don't take note of all the meals that you're preparing, all the stuff that you have to wipe, (laughs) all the the sacrifices that you are making. They don't notice all of that, and they're not constantly saying, thank you for doing all this for me. Now, I feel strong, strong emotions of affection for my kids, but again, the love is in the sacrifice on their behalf for their well-being, irregardless of whether there is a return. And guys, I'm just just a dude who lives in Davis. I'm not that special. But in that, there is, I think, a reflection of what God does for us. Do you realize how much God loves you? How much God has sacrificed to be with you, to be in relationship with you? with you, that God would risk everything, give everything he has to create this world, to create us, to send his one and only son to be in right relationship with you, 
knowing that you may reject that. John says, that's love. This is what love looks like. Costly, risky, sacrificial action, a death on a cross in our place. Now, one more big idea here. There's a connection in this text between love and knowledge or love and knowing. Amy and I just celebrated 10 years of marriage this week. It was pretty exciting to hit that milestone, and we're going to go celebrate that. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to celebrate that this coming week. Fun to reflect on the last 10 years and how our love has grown. I love Amy so much. But the weird thing is, is I'll say things when I'm watching a basketball game, like, I love Andre Iguodala. Now, obviously, those are two very different things, or at least they should be two very different things, right? (laughs) And the reason they're different, it has to do with this idea of knowing. I love Andre Iguodala because uh, the role that he plays for the Warriors, the way that he plays the game of basketball, I admire how he does all of that, but it's not really love because, believe it or not, I don't actually know him. (laughs) We don't really have any kind of relationship other than like fan and player. But I do have a relationship with Amy. This is how John talks about this. Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Look at some of the words there within that text. Know, seen, testify, acknowledge, know, rely. Now there, again, are a lot of ways to know things. We can know things intellectually, we can know things intuitively, these gut senses that we have, but there's also relational knowing. Again, back to my my marriage, I, I don't know Amy because I've talked to some other people about her. I don't know Amy because I've stalked her social media feeds and see what she's up to all the time. No, I know Amy because of this relationship that we've had for the last 15 years, and in particular the last 10 years, the daily routine of life together has grown our love, has grown our knowledge of one another, and that now becomes the lens through which we know each other. In the same way, we only know God through a loving relationship with him, through the daily routine of life together, and I think far too often we settle for Second-hand knowledge of God. What someone else has said or what someone else has experienced, and, and while I'm a wholehearted advocate for reading and studying Scripture, we do not know God just by reading about him. What John is inviting us to here is to know God through love, through relationship, not just through information. Now, John closes the this is section by saying, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. 
And then he writes some of the most beautiful words in this letter, maybe some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, the word that may stand out in these verses to us is that word judgment. We don't like judgment in our culture. We don't want to be known as a judgmental person. Judgment is seen as condemnation, right? Telling someone that what they're doing is bad or wrong. And this definitely connects back to that idea of love as permissiveness. Judgment and love seen as incompatible things. There's a lot of ways to talk about judgment and define it. I think a real simple way is this. Judgment is just exposing what is already there. It's turning the lights on in a dark room so that you can see where everything is. Again, maybe a frightening thought to some of us, this, this exposure. We don't want to be exposed in this way. But what John is saying, you do not need to be afraid of judgment. You do not need to be afraid of the lights being turned on when you are in a loving relationship with the God who is love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. That love is made complete or mature so that we will have confidence. This gets us right to the heart of the purpose of John's letter. This is part of his thesis statement. He wants his friends to be confident. He wants them to know Jesus, to be like Jesus, to love like Jesus, and he wants them to be confident in his love for them. Our kids have been riding bikes for a couple of years now, but when we were living in Oakland, um, it was a special occasion sort of thing. We had to put their bikes into our car and then drive 15, 20 minutes to a park somewhere where it was flat and safe for them to ride. And so again, it was, it was a thing that we could only do on, on certain times. Now that we live here, we've only been here just over a week, and we ride our bikes every day. It's revolutionary for us to be able to say, just go ride your bike in the street. Like, we even look at each other sometimes like, is, is that, are we like, is that okay? Like, <laughs> this is definitely not okay where we were living before. So anyway, we've been riding bikes every week, and both of our kids, because bike riding has been an occasional thing, are still in training wheels. Our daughter, Marina, who's five and a half, though, is, is like right there, and she's just flying up and down the street on that bike, and we even took the training wheels off the other day. We still haven't conquered the next step, but we're working on that. But again, even in just a week of this daily writing, you can see the confidence growing. And this is what John is trying to do with this letter to his dear friends. He wants the trading wheels to come off. You know Jesus, he's saying to them. You know the God, the loving God who created the universe, who risked everything for you. You have this incredible relationship with him. If you are going to be confident in anything, be confident in this, be confident in his great love for you. Now let me just add one more layer to this before we tie it all together here and, and close in, in worship and communion. A.W. Tozer is famous for saying, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that one more time. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For Far too many of us, when we think of God, 
we, we get these images of an angry parent or a grumpy old man or a, a dictator who's up there in the sky just waiting for us to mess up so he can zap us. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Now, in the book of Matthew, God the Father speaks these words over his son, Jesus. This is very early in the Jesus story. Matthew chapter 3, God says, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is so fascinating to me. It comes again at the beginning of Jesus' story as it's recorded in the Gospels. It's the scene where he's being baptized. And God speaks these words of him before Jesus does most of what we think about him doing before he calls his disciples, before he starts healing people and driving out demons and teaching, well before his trial and his death and his resurrection. Before any of that, God says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Think about that for a minute. Everything Jesus does, all of that activity comes from this place, this identity grounded in, I am a son, and I am loved, and my dad is pleased with me. No need for him to seek approval, no, no energy around trying to earn anything. All of his loving, serving, sacrificing, healing, teaching, it comes from a place of confidence in who he is and who loves him. Now remember what John says. In verse 17, in this world, you are like Jesus. In this world, we are like Jesus. When you have a loving relationship with the creator of the universe, the God who is loved, God says over you, you are my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. Whom I love, with you, I am well pleased. What would it look like if we started there? What, it, what would it look like if that was the first thing you thought of when you thought about God? I'm a child. My dad loves me. He's pleased with me. John closes by saying, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. A strong identity grounded in the confidence of God's love for us frees us from fear and it frees us to love other people. Dallas Willard summarizes this well in what he calls the unity of spiritual orientation. There's your $10 phrase for the day. The unity of spiritual orientation. He writes, to understand Jesus' teachings, we must realize that deep in the orientations of our spirit, we cannot have one posture towards God and a different one toward other people. We cannot love God and hate human beings. Far too often, we live with this posture where we have this pious, personal devotion to God, and then we're... Uh, we treat our roommates poorly. We're harsh to our kids. We're disrespectful to our employees. We bash people on the internet, whatever that looks like for you. 
So one very simple but important way to gauge our relationship with God is to ask the question, am I in right relationship with the people around me? Is there someone I need to forgive? Is there someone I need to apologize to? Cannot have one posture towards God and a different one towards people. Now, there's an, uh, an interpretation of John's writing where it appears that he's only speaking here of other believers. In other words, we only need to love the people that we go to church with or who share similar beliefs with us. Now, for some of us, that's a pretty big challenge, right? Loving church people can be kind of hard sometimes. And so maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, this call to love your brothers and sisters here. And if that is true, I would just encourage you to do the work. Reconcile, apologize, forgive, do what you need to do to be in right relationship with the people here. Now, while John does put priority on the faith community, it's not at the expense of loving those outside of the community. I think far too often we use this kind of language as a justification for withholding love from whoever we deem as an outsider. We draw these lines and whoever is on the outside of those lines, not a brother, not a sister, don't have to love them. Now we certainly need to have boundaries with people. That's a whole other sermon though. (laughs) The clear teaching of scripture is that we are called to love all people regardless of whether they attend this church or have different views or beliefs. And it's important here that we remember God loved us first, meaning God loved us before we were an insider, before we got our act together, before we professed our love for him. God loves us first. And so if we are to be like Jesus in the world, we must love people in the same way, in their otherness, in their brokenness, whether they will love us back or not. Now, it's been, I think, a sad week for a lot of people, depending on how tuned in you are to news and current events. There's been some stuff that may have been triggered for you this last week. For me, it's a reminder of just how much our world desperately needs God's love. And that's what we're here for, right, is to point people towards this love, that there is a God who loves you. A God who has given everything, risked everything to be in relationship with you. So what I want to do here in closing um, is just throw out a whole bunch of questions. And as we uh, move into a time of worship and communion, use that time to move through whatever question sort of hits you this morning. What do you need to sit with? What do you need to wrestle with? Use this time and space to talk to God about that and respond the way that you feel led. So what comes into your mind when you think of God? Do you realize how much the God who is love loves you? The lengths that he's gone through to be in relationship with you. Have you acknowledged that Jesus is the Son of God? Sent by God to be an atoning sacrifice, to die a death in your place as a demonstration of God's love for you. And then are you growing in confidence of that knowledge? Who are you being called to love? 
Who are you afraid to love? Have you been withholding love from someone? Who do you need to share the good news of God's love with? And where do you need to take a risk, make a sacrifice, initiate a conversation? Who are you being called to love? The training wheels, friends, are ready to come off. Fear not. You are free to love because you are deeply, deeply loved. Let's pray. Father, again, a lot to to reflect on, a lot to chew on from this text. I pray, first of all, this morning for those who have maybe struggled with uh, understanding that you are love, that underneath all of the mess and craziness and pain of life, underneath all of that is the truth that the foundation of our universe is love. And so God, for those who have maybe struggled with that, I just ask that you would reveal yourself to them in a way that that makes that new and fresh and real this morning. They They would be able to sense your great love for them, that when you look at them, you say, my child whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. For others of us in this room, maybe we've been, we've been harboring bitterness, we've been harboring hate, we've, we've gotten sideways with people, or frustrated with someone, there's a broken relationship there. God, would you give us the courage to initiate restoration and reconciliation in those places so that we can be free? Free to enjoy our relationship with you and with those in our lives, God. Whatever, whatever it is this morning that we need to do, give us the courage to respond in whatever way is appropriate. Amen.